0: We're all aware of the current cancel culture, you know, the modern-day form of ostracism in which someone is or something is thrust from its past importance and rendered no longer relevant and rejected by society. Here's the question. Can Jesus be canceled? Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Coffee, Conversations of Friends of Faith to Encourage and Equip. I'm Kim Crable, your host, and Can You Believe?, On our fifth year of coffee, it's amazing. So thank you so much for joining us each Monday. What a delight it is to have you. Today, our person of interest is Jesus himself. And our lead detective in our investigation of this matter is none other than the author of the best-selling book, Person of Interest, Why Jesus Still Matters in a World That Rejects the Bible, Jim Warner Wallace. Jim may be recognized from his days on the TV Dateline show where he was the featured cold case homicide detective, but he's also known as the best-selling author and nationally known speaker. Today, it is such an honor to be able to welcome Jim onto our show. Hey, Jim, thank you for joining us today.
1: So glad to be with you. It's our second time together. So this is great.
0: I know. I know. Well, you keep writing these incredible books. And so it's just such an honor and pleasure to have you um, joining us with this current book. But before we begin, uh, Jim, we just celebrated National Law Enforcement Appreciation Day. And all of us would like to thank you in all areas of those who served in law enforcement for your service. You know, my brother served for 35 years and what an honorable position. So thank you for all those years that you served.
1: Oh well, thanks so much. It's you know that doesn't often get said, and you're right. Yesterday was uh, it was the day, and and uh, we thought it was kind of neat. We have a, another ministry to police officers as well that we run uh, called the Thin Blue Life. And it's just at thethinbluelife.com. And so we try to help officers to kind of navigate their careers and what they're going to experience from a Christian worldview. And so, yeah, we, we are still invested both with trying to make a case from a detective's perspective for non-police officers and trying to make a case from a Christian perspective for police officers. So, so yeah, we're glad to be part of that process.
0: Oh, I didn't know that. So it's, what, tell us again how to find out about that.
1: Yeah, it's just at the, the Thin Blue Life Instead of line, thethinbluelife.com, yeah. and so that's where okay. we post articles that just kind of help officers navigate their careers and their lives off duty, on duty, uh, from a Christian perspective. And you know, some of that is is has been more made more difficult in the last several years, as you know. Um, and so a lot of it really the, the need kind of arose from this, the, the culture in which we're we're living. You know, this is a difficult job to be honest. There's times when I don't even think that that humans should be asked to do it um, because there's nothing really um, positive sometimes it seems that comes out of the experience for a lot of the men and women who do the job you know they they on the backside of doing the job they usually end up retiring into small rural communities where they want to be away from every person they can possibly be away from, right, because they just have had enough of it. Um, uh, but I, I'm trying to help people navigate those careers in such a way that they don't feel that way at the end. Uh, and I didn't feel that way at the end, but, I, of course, I became a Christian about halfway through my career, so that helped.
0: Yeah, well, and what what an honorable position, and what what a great thing that you're doing there that I didn't even know about. So, um, yeah, that's one of the things we always love to do is be able to honor the law enforcement. You know, my, like I said, my brother served for so many years. So, you know, the majority, you know, are such incredible, great people. And so just to have that day to honor them is always important for me. So that's great. Let me just ask you, you know, I know the audience pretty much, they know you, they, they see you, they see you from Dateline and everything. How did you choose to get into law enforcement?
1: Well my dad uh was somebody who who did it all growing up and so when I was in high school they had a an a explorer program you know which is kind of like Scouts uh, for teenagers, and you, it usually is in, uh, attached to a certain profession. And so, police explorers are, are people, are young people who go through um, a shortened academy. They get a chance to experience what it's like, and then they end up serving in local agencies. Sometimes, just you know, filing uh, data, working parades, uh, doing some traffic control. You know, just where they need an extra body they're not armed of course they're not peace officers they're just um in essence volunteers in the scouting program and so and so i did that as a high schooler and uh, but then i went into college and, and I, my degree was in the arts i got a bachelor's degree in design and a master's degree in architecture and i was working as an architect in los angeles county in santa monica but you know i i just felt like that job as an as a creative uh as a designer in architecture it was so consuming uh, that I was concerned that I didn't see anyone in our office who looked like uh, my wife and I. We were already together at that time, and, and I, I was 27, and I just didn't see anybody who looked like us, who had the kind of family aspirations that we did. And then I, I saw my dad. You know, he, he had been married a couple of times, but in his second family, he had seven kids, six kids, seven total, with me. And um, I felt like you know it was a it was a noble it really was. It didn't feel like I was shaped for it. I didn't. I didn't think. You know, I had been an explorer in high school, but I, I really had not considered this as a profession. But I felt like I could do a better job as a husband and a father in that role than I would have if I'd have been consumed by design work, where you just never go home because you're, you know, if you can spend an extra ten hours uh, working on this building, it'll be a better project. Well, you're going to spend the extra ten hours whether you get paid for it or not. And I, I found myself at work constantly. As an architect, and I just needed better boundaries. And so and so I I felt like, hey, this is this is that's the kind of selfish reason why I entered into law enforcement. But it turned out that the skill set I had um, it was immediately useful. You know, even when I was working in patrol as a young guy, every homicide that occurred in our city, uh, I was asked to come out and draw because I knew I could draw them. Uh, and I could, I could chart the evidence in the room, and I could you know, place the evidence in the room, and, and I could recreate the, the room for the trial at some point. And so I was at so many homicides before I ever was assigned a homicide, uh, so I started early uh, kind of being involved in those cases. It was helpful, especially later. And then when we mm-hmm. got to trials, uh, working at homicides, that skill set of, of being able to, to illustrate and to um, make it uh, visually um, um, understandable was super helpful with juries and a lot of our cases uh, were cold cases so these are unsolved murders. Uh, when I got to trial, it was, you know, a lot of the challenge is I've got the same evidence as maybe a couple of things that we've added over the years, but well, why is, why do I find it so compelling and how do I communicate that to a jury well, it's about visual connections often. You know, It's about creating visual parables or metaphors that this is like this, as this is to this. And, and then when we started doing that for juries, we, we had great success. And so it turned out that you know, God's got, got a sense of humor about that. I ended up using all that. Um, and even in the books I write, I mean, I illustrate all the books. Um, so this skill set as a designer and as an artist um, is still getting, being used, but not the way I expected to use it.
0: Well, that's what I think is so amazing is, you know, I, and that's why I always love the backstories because so many times maybe someone is in a place where they are right now and they have no idea that that's the stepping stone to where God is ultimately going to use them in their greatest calling. And what a beautiful background, uh, a perfect divine setup to get you to where you are now in writing the type of books that you write. Uh, these apologetics are just amazing. And, and to just, and thank you for all that that back information and I that just I, I just feel like that people are encouraged by people's story, not just what they're doing, but how they got there. I I always ask the why. Well, you you ask the why, but I try to ask the why. But but you know, I'm holding in my hand, uh, Jim, this incredible book, Person of Interest. Even the cover of it, I think, is just you know, I'm just a I'm one of those Dateline junkies, almost too much. I read the other day that I. This joke, uh, this lady said, I read so many datelines that every time I put down a remote control, I wipe off my (laughs) fingerprints. It's like, I chuckled that. I thought, yeah, you know, you get that mindset of um, being, you know. (laughs) <laughs> Isn't that funny? I just thought that was so funny.
1: Yeah, there, but, um, actually, there's a there's a there's a bit online. You have to look for it. I, I think you'll love it, Kim. It's it's a uh, Jim okay. Gaffigan. Who's is, is a pretty, is a he's a he's a very kind of clean uh, comedian. Doesn't use bad language. His stories are usually always clean. His wife is I think is Catholic, and she helps him write his his comedy. His name is Jim Gaffigan, and if you just Google uh, for Jim Gaffigan in Dateline, he does a his most recent comedy. They've released a clip of it where he's talking about Dateline, how you know, at some point Dateline moved toward murder and away from all of their stories, and it, it feels like um, every uh, happy marriage eventually ends in a murder if you watch Dateline. And, and so he kind of goes through the same kind of thing you're talking about, where I think we we there's no doubt that, that this genre of crime um, is interesting to people, and an entire. Um, networks, you know, or cable channels, like ID channel, like even like Oxygen. Yeah. that Oxygen yeah. was never doing crime dramas, but they realized as they started to put their foot in the water that it became their identity. And, and this is what people watch. And that's one of the reasons why I stay in that lane when I write these kinds of books, because there's a sense that if you're trying to make a case for Christianity from a historical perspective or from a literary criticism perspective, well, most people are unfamiliar with how historians work, and they're unfamiliar with how literary critics work, but they are familiar with the kind of forensic way that detectives work when they examine language, when they examine words that people say, even how they put the cases together about something that happened in the past, even if it only happened 10 years ago. And so that skill set is familiar to people. And and I always want to leverage that. And in this book, we're really including a story of a murder from you know from start to finish as kind of the primary narrative that drives the rest of the book about Jesus. So we start off with the the murder case and we turn every chapter toward Jesus. And and so I knew that I wanted the book when I talked to Zonervan, the publisher. I said, look of all the ideas that you could send me about a cover. I'm looking for covers that look like crime novels. I'm looking for a cover that looks like it's not an apologetics book at all, but is instead a a crime story. And that's what uh, we settled on because I felt like that. And what we're trying to do with that, Kim, is that there's a lot of folks who don't even know you can make a case. A lot of Christians who don't even know you can make a case from the evidence for Christianity. And so how do we engage that part of the church that doesn't even see the need. Meanwhile, their kids are largely walking away from the church because they don't feel like it meets the same kinds of standards or meets the same kind of intellectual rigor that the scientific world around them is demanding. Nothing can be further from the truth. But how do you get that group to even get interested? Well, that's what we're trying to do with these hybrid kind of books that are heavily illustrated. They, they, they leverage cop stories and, and eventually help you to see what the evidence is for Christianity.
0: I love what you said there, Um, Jim, as a, the greatest group in numbers are walking away, and our younger generations are walking away from church, their faith. But as a counselor, I know the statistics that also that same amount, the the number of uh, suicides drug addictions, overdoses are just escalating to the point to where counselors can't even keep up with it. They're not even, well, It's the numbers are too great. And so there has to be a correlation there. But this book, and I... I've read it almost cover to cover. I've highlighted it. I have just the illustrations. Now, I didn't realize, for some reason, I didn't realize that you were a designer or architect by trade. No wonder these illustrations are so good. But just to give the listeners just a, a little bit, I want you to know, listeners, this has been on the bestseller list for I don't even know how many weeks now. It's been declared a masterpiece of writing, illustration, and content. But Here's what's so interesting. When I read the back, so congratulations to you, um, Jim, on this. I mean, I've written a few books, but this one, I mean, what you've done here, it truly is a masterpiece. But here's what, this is what is compelling to me. And listeners, I think that I want you to be compelled by this because maybe you have doubts. Maybe something has happened in your life and you don't know that you know that you know. Maybe you're questioning, is, is there really a God? You know here's here's where or or if he's in your situation. This is what I love from uh, many of the, one of the many layerings of what I love about Jim's work is that on the back of the cover, uh, Jim and his writers have written that that it, that this book is a tool for us to make a convincing case for the truth of the Christian worldview. Well, this is so surprising to me, and listeners, maybe this would be surprising to you. In that this very author that we're talking to, who's given us the tools to prove the case for Christ, according to this book on page 26, was considered Jesus no more than a myth. Now, let's talk about that, Jim Warner Wallace. That's pretty awesome that you were able to dive in there as a non-believer questioning, and and now you're putting out these books for all of us as tools. How did you make that? How did you scoop from one side from one side of the spectrum all the way over to the other side.
1: Well, I mean, a lot of it is, you know, when you build, I, I, I came at it as a detective because I was, you know, um, 35 um, and walked into... A church with my wife, uh, she was more interested in seeing what was going on there than I was. Um, but uh, neither one of us really had ever talked much about God in the 18 years we had been together by that time. Uh, this was not on our radars. This was not, was not on my radar. I mean, I was happy to go to a church if you wanted to go for, like, Christmas, and, and our her, her background was Catholic growing up. Um, And I think we—I would have said, you know, we didn't own a Bible. She never didn't never read a Bible, but you know, culturally, she—you know—that's the kind of setting that she would have been comfortable in. So I just assumed Mm -hmm. that if we ever did start going to church, it would probably be in a in a parish somewhere. But we had friends who had invited us to a huge uh, evangelical church. I'd never been anything like that before. Um, I, I walked in with her uh, really didn 't even think this was worth my time, but at the same time, my dad's not a believer, and he is, is more than happy to go to church with people who are because he thinks that this is a useful uh, lie, a useful uh, delusion, but it, it is useful. he'd much rather live in a country that embraces the lie than in a country that doesn't um, He just sees it as a kind of utilitarian view so so that was my view as well and I walked in and then I began to examine you know the, the pastor said that Jesus was the smartest man. Who Whoever lived, and that provoked me to buy a Bible, which I did, and then I wanted to see what was so smart about Jesus, and I, I started to apply that. With how I know how to test witnesses, I test claims. Uh, there's a certain template we use. I wrote about that in a book called Cold Case Christianity, where I just wrote about, you know, how do we test what's in the actual document to know if it's reliable. But this book takes the opposite approach. This book uh, does kind of a thought experiment. Um, if you mm-hmm. destroyed every New Testament, like you were saying about kind of erasing Jesus, uh, you know, canceling Jesus from all, the, the, all the we could destroy all the written records about Jesus that we call the New Testament. Would if, if he is who he said he was, it seems to me that you'd still have a hard time getting rid of him right he should have the kind of impact on history that even if you destroyed the the text that describe who he was I would still expect to find a huge ripple effect if he was who he said he was. So I took the approach with this book that you take with nobody murders, which is just the kind of situation where you have like a husband who kills his wife and then she, he claims mm-hmm. that they had a fight and she ran off. Now he gets rid of the body, so you, we never find it. And then 30 years later, you're working a case where there's never been a photograph from a crime scene because it wasn't taken as a murder case. It was first investigated as a missing person. And then you never have a body that shows up. And, and so what, what do you do when you have an empty crime scene, what we tell the jury is that, if that on the day she vanished, if she was murdered, that was an explosive event, and, but every bomb is preceded by a long fuse that burns toward the detonation, and after it explodes, you got shrapnel and debris all over the crime scene, all over the blast radius, so you can make it a case for what happened on the day of the explosion by simply examining the fuse and the fallout. And that's what we do on these cases in front of a jury. They're all fuse and fallout cases. And I've got several jury presentations I've done for juries in which I illustrate this visually. They're kind of the same way I do in this book. Well, I thought, okay, if, if there's no crime scene, there's no body, there's no New Testament, couldn't I make a case for Jesus from simply the fuse and fallout of history? And that's what we tried to do in this book. So so the idea here is that, yeah, you can't cancel Jesus because it turns out that so much of what you love today, what you value today, even if you're an atheist, stands on the shoulders of Jesus and his followers. And from those dimensions of culture, art, music, literature, education, science, even other non-Christian world religions, you can get the data you need about Jesus. It can be completely reconstructed from those aspects of history and of culture So much has been written about Jesus by the people in those disciplines, and we would not have modern education. You wouldn't have the arts the way you see them today. Jesus has been a formative uh, uh, historical figure in all of those movements, and so much so. I'll give you an example of this. Just in education alone— it turns out that Jesus uh, inaugurates an educational worldview. Whether he, you know whether you think about it or not, he doesn't say go out and make converts. That's not the Great Commission. Mm-hmm. The Great Commission is to go out and make disciples, teaching them everything that I have taught you. That means that you have got to establish a teaching culture immediately. And if, if, if they say, well, look, these people don't even like I got to teach them how to, they don't read. Well, then you have got to teach them how to read. Well, but they don't have an alphabet. Well, then you have to create an alphabet and then create the, and then teach them how to read it. In other words, you, to, to say to, to make disciples in this way, teaching them every, for many people groups, that means you're going to have to inaugurate an entire educational structure. And this is exactly what happens. Modern universities as we know them today blossom out of the monastery and out of the cathedral schools that then become the three modern universities we know at Oxford, uh, at Bologna, at Paris – and from those universities are the daughter universities that account for the scientists in the scientific revolution. And it turns out if you go and visit the top 15 universities in the world today, unsurprisingly, they were all founded by Christ followers. Even if they deny Jesus today, they were founded by Christ followers. And the buildings they're still using have all of the images, stained glass, scriptures of the founders. And the charters still have information about why they founded the school. You can reconstruct the story of Jesus from just the campuses of the top 15 universities in the world today. And in the science, for example, the blossoms out of that educational process, the science fathers, the, the initiators of the major scientific disciplines of history all the way up to the modern period to today, from modern astronomy all the way to quantum mechanics, these Founders of these disciplines happened to have been Christ followers and they wrote about Jesus so if you you can learn more from the journals about Jesus from the science fathers than you can from the church fathers that's the kind of impact that Jesus had and so we talk about this in the book not just to show the great and unparalleled impact of Jesus uh, but, to talk about how you can recover all the data about Jesus, even if they destroyed the New Testament, you'd also have to destroy the history of art, music, literature, education, science, and non Christian religions in order to erase Jesus and cancel him entirely
0: That's what I think is so amazing about the book is how well many things, but just how you go into you know the the background the backstories of the art, the music, the educational centers, everything that we we don't understand, you know, the foundational basis of where all of these come from and, you know, and the imprint or footprint of Christ in all of that.
1: Yeah, it's so true. We didn't learn this. I mean, I didn't. I'm. Um, okay, I was raised in in Southern California, and this is really not a place that is uh, culturally Christian, right? So, so I just it was not hard to, to grow up here and have no contact with the church or anyone who attended a church, um, and so I just that wasn't part of my experience, and I didn't have parents who were religious. So, so um, you know, you just it was not hard to. And so, in the educational process here in public schools. Um, you know, you, no one's going to talk about the history and the impact of Jesus, and if they did today, it would probably be in a negative way. And that's one of the things that I, I think is is powerful is that young people, for the most part today, when that, when Christianity is presented to them, it's more likely to be presented in a negative way by the culture, by the secular media, by the just the online than it is as a positive way. As a matter of fact, it, it's going to be seen as some negative attribute of either Christian nationalism. It's going to be seen as a negative impact of some form of evil, the wars that have happened because of religion. You know, you're going to hear all of the negatives. Uh, what they're not going to talk mm-hmm. about is that everything that you think is beautiful and that matters to you today as, a, as an atheist, and that was for me, it was those things. It was literature, art, music, education, and science. That was the stuff growing up mm-hmm. that I thought was of the highest value. Uh, having no idea that of the impact of jesus of nazareth in those disciplines
0: yeah absolutely jim and one of the things that i think that we must come back to as believers i think it behooves us as believers to really know the word and to it um, you know experiencing god feeling god the emotions you know all of that is wonderful it's experimental we must you know that is that is so important, but the intellectual side is just as important. You know, I think about that scripture in Second Peter. Um, I think it's chapter three, verse eighteen. It says, "But we are to grow in the grace, grace the uh, expressive part, the experimental part, the spiritual part." But it also says, "And knowledge of our Lord." I don't know. For some reason, I think that being able To have the tools that you have to be able to embrace them, memorize them, take them back to the word which you have really makes us to be, allows us to be able to do what God wants us to do, which is talked about in 1 Peter, which is to give an answer to everyone who asks us about the hope that we have in Christ. We have to be able to speak about who Jesus is on an intellectual level just as well as just an emotional level. Don't you agree? Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, and think about it—the the command that, that Paul talks about when he talks—he says that some of us in Ephesians, some are pastors, some are teachers, some are evangelists. That means that some are not. Some that's just not maybe where your gift is. Uh, in other words, there's a sense in which Paul says, "Yeah, this is each of us is gifted for a certain way," and but we feel from the Great Commission, we feel this burden to be evangelists. But but Paul's telling us not all of you are gifted this way. But Peter says. Not some of us, but all of us have to be ready to give the reason for the hope we have in Christ. This is not an option. It's not like he's saying, hey, some wow. of you will be good at this and some of you won't. Like Paul, Paul does not include case-making or being an apologist in his list of some, ofs, some of you, some of you. Peter just says it. You're, you're called to do this. So it's not as optional as you might think, right? And if you feel the burden that you felt for evangelism because you're, you're, you consider yourself a Christian, then I hope that you'll also feel a similar burden for um, case-making to be able to, give, be able to answer your kids' questions. And you might think, well, look, I don't have um, those doubts. Uh, I, I personally uh, – I'm, I'm in. I'm feeling comfortable about it. I, I don't have questions. I don't have – well, do you have kids? Do you have grandkids? Because I guarantee you, whether they're voicing them or not, you know the data is really, really clear. This had another Pew report mm-hmm. come out last month. We are losing a percent a year. It's hemorrhaging at this mm-hmm. point. And these are not people who are necessarily uh, don't think that there's a God. They are just moving from what uh, self-identifying as Christians into identifying as having no religious affiliation. That's the category they'll check the box in nuns, so we call this the rise of the nuns. Every year the nuns increase by a percentage and Christians decrease by a percentage. If you look at that from 1970 to now this is a huge shift in culture that's occurring and it's much more pronounced with Gen Z and Millennials than it is with Boomers. It's happening at a younger age that young people are not finding themselves identifying in the religion of their parents or their grandparents. So the question becomes, if you think, well, I'm not really, I don't need this. Well, if you have kids, your kids do want to know, why do you think this is true? Why should I care? Why does Jesus still matter? And that's really what it comes down to. It's not so much, I always say, you've got to give two whys for every what with kids. I wrote a book with Sean McDowell called So the Next Generation Will Know. And we're talking about Gen Z in that book. And what we talk about is that you have to know what is true and, and communicate that to your kids like what is true about jesus what is true about the bible but you got to provide two whys for every what you tell your kids the first why is why do you think that's true and that's what we try to do with these kinds of books uh, the second why though is probably even more important for kids okay so you, you you told me this is true and you made a case for why is true which a lot of us as parents can't even do that yet but we need to mm-hmm. now the next question for them is why should i care Okay, okay, This you're geeked out on this theological thing, and I get why you think this is true, but why do I – it doesn't seem like it affects me. It doesn't matter to me. And, and that's the thing that – that kind of apathy you overcome by answering the second why. Why should I care? And that's what we try to do with a book like this because, well, what do you care about? Well, let me show you how this is only the way it is because of Jesus. This thing you care about mm-hmm. is entirely dependent upon a Christian worldview inaugurated by Jesus – and then lived out by his followers, and we have to be able to show our kids that because if we don't, um, we're this is this is they're waiting for us to make this case whether we think so or not.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, Jim, we we have to take a thirty second break, and then when we come back, I'm going to open up the lines. If anybody would like to call in, I know so many times that they're just so interested in what you're hearing, they wait and and call in afterwards, uh, which is fine. But if anyone would like to call in, you may call 347-324-5246. And be sure and press one. You'll go into a, a private um, area, and then I'll be alerted that you're on air to give your question or your response to anything that Jim is saying. Jim, when we get back, I want to talk about. You know, I love what you're saying there about um, the fallout. I'm wondering if any of those who are staying, I wonder what the intensity of their belief is, and I wonder if there's a if there's an embracing of this type of information, of really being able are they are they guarding themselves? Are they arming themselves uh, more with the Bible? Is there is there an awakening that's happening with those who are staying in the church? I'd like to talk about that, and then we're going to talk about um, you know what why why do you think it's surprising that Jesus had such an impact on history? Let's just talk about his impact still today and and why it is that our culture would love to cancel him entirely. So let's give us uh, 30 seconds, and we'll be right back with Jim Warner Wallace. I'll be here to hear what's on your mind.
1: As an adult, kids want to know you're listening to them, but they also want to listen to you. When it comes to alcohol, they want to know your expectations and how and why to avoid underage drinking. Talking early and often about it in everyday conversations reinforces your message and keeps lines of communication open. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. Hello,
0: everyone, and welcome back to Coffee, Conversations of... Friends of Faith to Encourage and Equip. We're delighted to have you, no matter when you're listening to this, and we appreciate the way you pass along these incredible interviews that really do matter to our lives. Before we get back to uh, Jim, I'd like to remind you, if you'd like to... No more information about our ministry, org or Roses and Rainbows, you can go to our website. Please check out, we are starting our 2022 tour across America, where we're going to be talking about the ministry of friendship, the ministry of friendship. So, uh, building communities. We are stronger together through the the Bond of Friendship. So check us out there. Please check your local listings for our TV show, Coffee with Kim. We have incredible new guests that are um, that we're interviewed, and it was just an honor to be able to interview Josh McDowell and Diane Cannon, some of those people, and really hear the whys and the background in their lives. So check us out. We'd love to have you join us. Now let's get back to what's so important about this day, and that is interviewing um, Jim Warner Wallace, the author of Cult Case Christianity, it was one of the the book that we we first uh, interviewed Jim with. But this uh, bestseller now that's just um, an incredible. It's been called a masterpiece, and it truly is um, person of interest. And if you just walk by and see it on the shelf, the just the cover alone, if you if you're interested in detective type work, would draw you in. The cover is so interesting; it just it pulls you in. But then the incredible uh, content of being able to give each of us the tools and the why so that we can truly be able to answer people in our world on an intellectual, biblical intellectual level as to uh, why Jesus matters, why he's always mattered, and why truly we can never cancel him. But, boy, our society seems to be doing that. And, and, and as Jim was just saying, we, we're finding ourselves just walking away. It's, there's, there's something that's going on in our brains that are just, we're just rejecting. And um, I want to talk about that. Why do you think that is the case? Jim, let's just start. And again, thank you so much. I know you travel and you're speaking. I see you standing before thousands of people. So thank you for taking the opportunity to sit with us for a full hour on the show today. We, I hope you know how much I appreciate that.
1: Oh, no, I'm, I'm enjoying it. It's been great. And I, and I think what's, there's a phenomenon that's ha- happening, and I will sometimes see that. Where for example, if you're listening to us right now and you're thinking, well, this is not the condition in my church. I don't see that attrition rate or I don't see the apathy or I don't see that in our – so there's I want to kind of uh, parse that out a little bit because I, I think something mm-hmm. is happening that's so interesting. Um, and here's how I try to – to 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 illustrate it, um, imagine your table, your dining room table is the entire country, and and on that table there's a tablecloth that that occupies right now about sixty percent of the table. It doesn't quite fit the table; it's smaller than it needs to be. Well, that sixty percent are people who would say they identify as Christians today. Now, it's still a majority, but it's shrinking dramatically from where it was, like I said, by 1% a year. Next year it'll be 59, then it'll be 58, it'll be 57. That's the trajectory we're on. Now, where those people are going is they're jumping off the tablecloth and onto the table. That table are people who 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 is filled with all kinds of folks, but largely they're people who say, I'm just no longer religiously affiliated with anything. Now, I, do, I still believe, many of them still believe in a higher power. They still believe in God of some sort. They just do not identify themselves as Christians anymore. So the number of atheists that's on the table, that, that number is not really growing. It's, it's for the most part been about the same as it always has. So these are not people who are jumping from belief in God as Christians to complete atheism or agnosticism. Some are, but the vast majority are simply saying, I no longer affiliate with any known religion. And why is that happening? Because let's face it, we would much rather create God in our own image, in our own mind, that that we can immediately say we've satisfied God because he's a God of our own creating. Uh, We don't need to do anything to know that God because we've created him in our own mind. That is a much more comfortable version, to come into easy theism that people will embrace if given the opportunity. And you see this happening. Now, here's what's left, though. You have a bunch of people that are uh, now on the tablecloth. The the tablecloth is shrinking, and it's not covering the table as much as it used to, but there's still a tablecloth. But it turns out, if you were to ask the people on the tablecloth, the people who who say they're Christians, well, describe for me what you mean. What does it mean to be a Christian? What do Christians believe? What are the claims of Christianity I must affirm? It turns out a very small percentage, about 20% of the tablecloth, can even answer that question. They even know, they, they've been part of the church. They were raised in the church. They got baptized in the church, but they've never even studied or have any idea. They're theologically, for the most part, naive. They, many of them would deny the substitutionary atonement of Jesus on the cross. There's an entire group of what we are now calling progressive Christians who deny some of the central claims of Christ's deity, of, of the things that have always defined us as a body of believers. They just either have never looked at it, or they now flat out reject those claims. So it turns out, though, that that 20% who can actually affirm what Christianity has already stood for, that number does not appear to be changing. So if you ask people, well, is the church shrinking well, you've got to ask. But in other words, there's a, on that tablecloth, there is a plate that's sitting that's about 20% of the size of the tablecloth. So when we say, is Christianity shrinking in America? Well, if you're talking about Christianity that is the tablecloth, yes. But some would argue those folks really aren't Christians to begin with necessarily. It's the people on the plate that have always been mm-hmm. firm believers, and that's not shrinking so, what so so it depends on how you describe what is it to be a Christian. Is it the tablecloth, or is it the plate? The plate mm-hmm. seems to be about the same size. and, and those people are in, in that, and, and so the question becomes, well so as time goes, if the church shrinks from 60 percent of the culture to the 20 percent who were always firm believers to begin with, has the church really shrunk, or has it always been about that size? It just looked larger because it was culturally popular. You, know, you couldn't get elected unless you said you were a Christian. You couldn't be part of the clubs. You, know, you couldn't be part of the in-group. Well, now that you're part of the out-group, if, if you're claiming to be Christian, you would expect that, that tablecloth of easy believers to kind of shrink. And that, that probably is going to be happening going forward. So that's, that's how we have to kind of look at it. So you might be in a church, for example, which is filled with the 20% people on the plate then you're thinking, no, nothing's changed here. Well, I'm talking about Christendom at large in America and people who would acclaim a Christian identity.
0: Yeah, that's very interesting because uh, the whole concept of, well, are they the ones that were going, were they truly You know, Had they truly had an experience with Christ, were they true believers? Because I think back to what you said about your dad, that uh, he would go to church because he thought it was a useful delusion. It makes me wonder how many people are in that category. It's like, I'll just go because it it is the way. It is the way because culture expects that from me, and and that's the way it was so many years ago. You you had the fish on your car, and you you, you counted being a Christian because it's what people – needed you to hear. But when time's tough, you know, how many really are, are sticking with the value of who we're supposed to be? When you talk about the 20% um, that can that affirm the twenty percent that are still on uh, on the plate you know it makes me think of that same percentage that's in the church about twenty percent of twenty percent of the church are actually the ones who do all the work who carry the load so uh, all those statistics are very interesting to me but here's what I'd like to ask you in your travels because you are speaking at universities at large groups smaller groups if Everywhere, are you seeing an intensity in the believer's life? Are you seeing an embracing of really being a, a longing to to know, uh, to be able to speak intellectually about the scriptures and to be able to to give a case? For well, I, I,
1: I, if I'm honest with you, I don't I don't I don't see it much, and here's here's why I think I don't see it. I think by, by our very nature, are we not? Look, the the fallen nature of humans is perfectly described on Mm -hmm. the pages of Scripture. What I love about the Bible is that it describes the world the way it really is. And and I can tell you, I've worked with a number of these cases where we get to trial, and, and a defense attorney will represent the defendant, who is, for the last 35 years has been an outstanding citizen in the community. You know, 35 years ago he killed his wife, but after that he, he for the most part was you right. know, a respected part of the community. And so the the defense mm-hmm. attorney can cannot imagine that this person who has done all of these good things over the last 30 years is capable of a murder. Now I look at that and I think, well, it's just because you're not holding a Christian worldview. If you held a Christian worldview, you know that we are at, at, as as we, we have the capacity for brilliance and 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 the capacity for depravity simultaneously it's the enigma of man it's that being you know created in the image of god yet being deeply rebellious this is the story of genesis right this we we get it we understand that the fallen we don't believe like the secular folks around us that humans are by nature good and are corrupted by the systems and governments and societies as they grow up we believe just the opposite that we are by nature fallen and we will simply pervert and corrupt whatever system you put in front of us that is the nature mm-hmm. of how we see the world and that that is actually an accurate depiction of what has happened historically Because it's an accurate depiction of humanity, it's biblical anthropology, and it makes sense because Mm -hmm. we see it. Now, I think part of the problem for us is is that we are by nature lazy, and if we can Mm -hmm. either be a member of something or claim something without having – so if you said, well, look, um, in order to be um, baptized, uh, uh, like in the first century, if you were going to be baptized, you might be in a catechism for up to three years before they would baptize you on Mm -hmm. Easter Sunday. Um, One of the very earliest um, documents in Christendom is a book called the Didache with the teaching of the Twelve Apostles to the Nations after the Gospels. It's one of the earliest Christian documents, and it is a a, a document that is used to train and catechize young Christians into the faith. But that seems like a high bar, right? I mean, don't you just want to say, I I love Jesus, I believe in Jesus, get baptized, and I'm in. Is it something more required? If if there is nothing more required, trust me, people aren't going to do any more. But, if we raise that bar and say well yeah, actually it 's about knowing certain truths sufficiently to be able to proclaim them to your children to be able to think and and, and, and consider these every day so that you will live differently based on your knowledge you know I, we go through scripture uh, Susie and i we're right now we 're in Daniel. And as we you know, cause we were in Revelation before, so we thought, let's go to Daniel because there's so much of Daniel in Revelation. So we get over to Daniel. Now we're about maybe nine chapters into Daniel. And, you know, you forget that there's a bunch of stuff in there I, I have not read in years that I needed to read again because, you are you're, you're, you know, it's maybe your third time through. But you forget things. And it's being constantly in this state of, hey, by the way, people are already doing this for every other meaningless attribute of their lives. Okay, so, so for example, we're just finishing up football season. Well, I I, I bet you if you're a football fan like I am, you know who's in the playoff and who who isn't in in the pros. You know that tonight is the national championship game uh, in college. You've got probably a view of which team you think is going to because you've already catechized yourself in that area. You've already studied. You read this stuff. You listen to it on every podcast. you saturated yourself with the sport or the pastime that you love. Compared to what you know about scripture, it's probably disproportionate right because you're you're not geeked out as much on, on, on the little nuances of theology as you are geeked out mm-hmm. on the little maneuverings within the playoff system that's about to start next weekend in the pros now
0: mm-hmm. i just know
1: as a guy that's something i have to con my wife will always say to me why do you know so much about that and it's a good question <laughs> because it just means that i'm distracted by a bunch of nonsense and and it mm-hmm. seems like sometimes in a, when you're in a chaotic world the what we want from sports is don't be part of the chaos Um, we we want a pastime that that distracts us from the bad news Um, so because we're because we're surrounded by bad news or by by concerns or fears or COVID or whatever it may be and what we want in in our sports is something that keeps our well it turns out if you're looking for respite it's not a distraction you need is to be centered Right, it, it, Jesus yeah. does this so brilliantly in, in in the Gospel of John, where his disciples are, are are really now facing the reality that he is about to leave them, and and he tells them, "Do not let your hearts be troubled." For I believe in God, believe also in me. Uh, you know, my Father's house are many rooms. If that were not so, I would have told you, because I, I'm going there to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again i will come and take you to myself so that where i am there you also will be now that's a comforting notion and what it means is that god's offer for the next life god's offer in eternity is not just heaven for good people that's why people say well i'm a good person why wouldn't i go to heaven the offer for the next life is for those who have been troubled and love jesus because he is the solution for your troubled hearts those who are missing Jesus will be reunited with Jesus. If you've never leaned on Jesus, if, you, if he's not who you ought to be in your life, then why would you want to be in the next life? The, the offer of the next life is not just a heaven and some kind of delight. It's to be reunited with Jesus so that where he is, we also will be. And so if you don't want to be next to him now, you're not going to want to be next to him then. And, and there's the the, the the issue we have to help our kids to see that, that, no, if Jesus rose from the grave, he is everything that we think he is, and and that ought to change the way we see him, right? And if you're troubled about the situation you're in, yeah, you can get, be distracted by the world around you, or you could lean in to the scriptures. And, and so I think that that version of Christianity that says you ought to know what it is scripture says, that's a harder version because um, it requires mm-hmm. us to do something, to work as hard over here as we do over there. And, and that's where I think if we're by nature fallen and lazy, and we, if we can get it for nothing, we'd much rather get it for nothing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Gosh, you covered so much there, so, so much there. One of the things that, um, oh, I, I don't even, I've, I've, written, I've been writing so many notes, but I think what, what you're saying there is so true about um, everything. But one of the things, Jim, that it just keeps saying, I keep thinking is that, for so long, I re- I saw the Bible as just something that was going to condemn me, something that definitely was not going to comfort me, something that was going to highlight everything I'd ever done wrong or everything that I might do wrong. And and I think it's that lie, you know, it's that um, that that's the delusion right there. And once you and listeners, you know, here you know, it's like once you crawl into this, dive into this, slowly slip a toe into this you begin to realize everything that you've just said, Jim, it's like that's, that's where I run now for my comfort. That's where I run when I do feel like I've fallen short because the Bible says we've all fallen short. That's where I go to realize that even if I've fallen short, God says he's greater than that, that when I feel condemned, he says, even if your heart is condemned, I am greater than your heart. You know, he, he is the comfort, but being able for people, people have to experience that. And so we have to have the knowledge to guide them, invite them into that word. So, And I, I see you doing that in social media and different places where you are inviting people into the presence of God so that they can build that relationship, so that they can see uh, you're you're so great at building the case. It's just amazing how God has used everything in your life, at, you know, has been preparing you, you know, for this, this uh, great moment in, in which you're living. So um, let me just ask you, we, we only have about 10 minutes left. Let me ask you, um, Jim, personally, you know, why why does Jesus matter to you personally?
1: Well, okay, so a couple of reasons. Of course, you know, uh, when I first began examining uh, the case for Jesus, I, I really didn't know where it would lead. And, and I didn't understand the gospel um, until well after I began to trust what the gospels said about Jesus, but that only gives you belief that Jesus is who he is. You could, you could examine who Jesus is in the Gospels. You're going to get to a place where if you test them, you will find they do pass the test. I talk about that in Cold Case Christianity. And then you're stuck with this position where you believe that the Gospels are telling you something about Jesus that is true, but you may not have trusted in Jesus. For your salvation, you've got belief that rather than belief in, and belief in is what is a saving faith. And, and the, to, for me, that the corner you turn in order to go from one to the other is you stop reading the. God. Once I got to the place where I thought okay, I did this checks boxes, I get it. I, I this is this. I think this is telling me the truth about Jesus. <clears throat> I talked to my wife. I said, "I'm still not sure though why God would have to come and die on a cross. I don't get that part." Because I was focused in the Gospels. And if you read through the New mm-hmm. Testament, you know, the best descriptions of your knee, for example, are in the book of Romans. Oh, my gosh, if you read Romans, that's an eye-opener. Because it's not talking okay. so much about Jesus as it is about you. So if you'll stop reading mm-hmm. for a second about, and this looking at the data about Jesus, and look at what the Bible says about you, and that's what I did mm-hmm. next. And that, that will make a difference. That that Once you realize that, yeah, I'm that fallen human in need of a Savior, just like the New Testament describes well then, you can be comforted by the fact you've already done the work to know there is a Savior. You just didn't realize you needed one, and and I think for a lot of us, we know we need one because our life. But I didn't. Ha- I had a very comfortable, successful life, and I I, I wasn't trying to fix anything. You know, I, I say this all the time, I'm not a Christian because it works for me because I don't think it actually works for me in the sense that it's easy to live. Yes, does it work for me in terms of salvation? Of course. But but is it easy to be a Christian in the culture today? No, it's going to be harder and harder for our young people. It's going to be less and less popular. I'm in California. It's already not popular here. So so I think that you, know, you just have to realize that. But I'm a Christian because it's true. Not because I was trying to fix something or I was raised this way or or had hopes or wanted to have the best life now. No, because it actually is true. And there's going to be a lot of days if you're a Christian where it's not going to be comfortable. And this has never been the promise of Christianity. Jesus said this in the the Sermon on the Mount, right? He he ends it with, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely claim all kinds of evil because of me against you. He says, Rejoice and be glad because your reward in heaven is great. (laughs) It's not going to feel great here. But the reward, in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you, he says, it's always been this way. That if you proclaim the word of God to a fallen world, get ready. And if you are somebody who believes what Jesus taught about marriage, about sexuality, about gender identity, about the sanctity of life, these are all issues that now the culture is diametrically opposed to the teaching of Jesus. If you're going to proclaim the teaching of Jesus, if you're going to follow, believe the teaching of Jesus, you will be persecuted just like Jesus. So the promise is not if. He says when. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you. That's going to happen. It's a promise. Mm-hmm. So, so we have to make a decision. Is, it, is the truth valuable enough for us to live with that kind of discomfort? Um, is it we have to teach our kids, is the truth valuable? And this is why the the most important teaching we can do is the nature of truth. You You hear this a lot, and we're running out of time, so I don't want to dive into it too deeply, but you hear a lot that we apply possessive personal pronouns to truth claims. This is my truth, your truth, their truth, our truth. When in fact there are truths that are the truth, that we have got to make sure we understand the difference between objective claims and subjective claims. Yes, you have your opinions about your favorite cars and your favorite dessert, but claims about objective realities like fact sets in criminal trials or like the existence of God, your opinion cannot make it so. Your opinion cannot keep it from being so. There are things that occur objectively that we have to discover. We cannot decide them. We have to discover them. And so I think part of the first thing we have to do is teach our kids to, to make those distinctions about truth. Because in the end, um, I would much rather be in the truth, even if it provides discomfort, in terms of physical discomfort or whatever. I'd rather be in the truth than in the comfortable lie. And, and what we're going to have to be, help our kids to see is that there's a high value in truth. So give our kids such a high value in truth that they are uncomfortable in lies. And if we can do that, um, then they will uh, come back to the objective claims of Christianity because they, they best describe the world that we live in.
0: Mm. That's um, powerful. <laughs> just I'm writing I, it just, uh, yeah, I, I, for the audience, um, the book is called Person of Interest. Um, of course, Amazon, there's so many places to get it. What is your final word, uh, Jim, on this book, Person of Interest? What, why was it so important for you to write this? Why do you well, do what I'm- you do?
1: Well, about halfway through it, you know, most of my book subtitles are, you know, a cold case detective makes a case for this, makes a case for that, makes a case for this, and we, I know that when Zondervan wrote the book and published the book, they probably were inclined to put that, but as a subtitle. But about halfway through, I realized that that this is really a book about why Jesus is beautiful, what why, that the majesty, the unparalleled impact and importance of Jesus. And I wrote to the publisher and said, no, I'm changing. I'm going back and rewriting the first chapters. Uh, this is really more a book about why Jesus matters. It's answering that mm-hmm. second why, you know, the two whys for every what. And a lot of my books are just what's and why, the first why. And here's why this is, these claims about Christianity are true. This is a book that is as much about why does any of this should any of this matter to you? Because I guarantee you, the stuff that you would say is just is distracting you and distracting your kids. That matters to them is is really grounded. That, the, that those aspects of culture and human history are really so Christ-dependent that they just, they just don't know it. It's, let's at least educate them to know the things that they love. Um, for the most part have, were, Are caused by Jesus of Nazareth And his followers So at least they'll know What it is exactly they're ignoring You know, Because if you don't know What you're ignoring You don't feel like You are ignoring anything So I think part of it Is to get that, that message out
0: Absolutely um, And I understand Jim There's a uh, video study That goes along with the book
1: Yes, as a matter of fact, we spent a week filming. It's a, kind of a short movie. It's about two and a half hours total, but it's ten short episodes that trace the homicide investigation plus the investigation for Jesus. And they did Igniter Media did it. It's it's available. All this stuff you can find information, and you'll see a sample first episode at personofinterestbook dot com. Person of interest book dot com has a sample of the first session, but I think when you see it and you see the kind of level of, of quality that Igniter did in those videos, you'll you'll I think they are I wish more people knew about the videos actually than the book because the videos are tremendous.
0: Yeah, I wanted to be sure and bring that up because this is something uh, groups could do in their homes. There's just so many ways that they could use this to really dive in because friends, it really does behoove us to know our why and really be able to present our case for Christ. Um, Jim, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, my gosh, I always knew. I told my husband last night, I said, oh, I have to prepare I have to prepare for Jim because he always comes with lots of intellectual knowledge and understanding, but you always break it down and you give us these pictures uh, like a good detective does, I suppose. We walk away with analogies and we have a greater understanding. And I just want to thank you so much for dedicating your life to doing this and thank Susie, your wife, right, who travels with you so much and is a part of everything that you do.
1: I really appreciate you saying that. I'm so glad to be on your show. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Absolutely. And, uh, Franz, if you remember, he said person of interest Dot Is it org or com?
1: It's personofinterestbook.com. Person personofinterestbook.com. Interest book person dot dot com. Com. Yep.
0: Absolutely. Go there. And Jim, is it there that maybe if a church wanted to request you to come speak, is, is there a place there that they make that request?
1: Yeah, the very bottom of the page has got a link to our website, which is just coldcasechristianity.com. So either one of those. But if you go to com, you'll see the link at the very bottom.
0: Great. Great. All right. Well, again, I loved it. Thank you so much, Jim, for giving us an, a, a full hour of your time. Listeners, I hope I know that you enjoyed this. I know that you have lots to think about. Please go on to Amazon right now and get the number one selling book, Person of Interest. And you have heard from the author yourself. You know his why, you hear his heart. Get the book, get some groups together. Let's all do a better job in growing, not only in the grace, but in the knowledge of Christ. Jim, thank you so much. I look forward to next time. Bye. Thank you. Bye, I everybody. look forward to it, too. Absolutely. Bye, everybody. Hope you this. To learn more about Kim's books, teaching materials, or to invite Kim to speak at your event, please visit
1: KimCrables.org. Thank you for joining us today. And remember,
0: to learn more, please visit KimCrables.org.